Hello and welcome to Farmerama. Hope you're um, cozying up for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere and anyone in the Southern Hemisphere enjoying the middle of summer. In this episode, we have two interviews for you. First, Olivia visited a community garden in her homeland. And then I visit a farmer in California who walks us through the organic no-till vineyard system he has created. I've been working with Farmerama for the last four years behind the scenes, and I'm also working on a PhD about land ownership and agroecology. Earlier this year, I went home to Aotearoa, New Zealand to visit my family for the first time since before COVID. While I was there, I visited Pauriwa in Tamaki Makaurau, or Auckland, where I spoke with Etienne Neho, the garden manager, and a keen horticulturalist and ecologist. I'm really excited to share this interview. Etienne speaks so beautifully about why the land and the garden are so important to him, to the iwi, and to the wider community. Pauriwa was given back to Ngāti Whātua Ōrake in 2018 by the New Zealand government as a cultural reparation for taking the iwi's land from them almost 200 years ago. In taking that land, they had broken the Treaty of Waitangi, one of Aotearoa's founding constitutional documents. The land is now co-managed by Ngāti Whātua Ōrake and the City Council. It's important to me to share the reality of how the land in Aotearoa, and who owns it, got to be how they are, as well as the amazing work being done on the land by those it has been returned to. I thought it would be useful for listeners outside of Aotearoa to have a bit of a glossary of key words in Te Reo Māori that Etienne uses. Tereo means the language, and Pākehā refers to New Zealanders of European descent, like me. So Tereo Māori is the Māori language, and Tereo Pākehā is English. Mara means garden, and kai means food. So a mara kai is a food or vegetable garden. The whenua is the land, the taiao is the environment, and rāko are trees. Tupuna are ancestors, and Māori, like the Māori of the whenua that Etienne talks about, is life force. Fano means family, while an iwi is an extended kinship group. Etienne mainly refers to Ngāti Whātua Ōrake, who are the tangata whenua, or the people of the land, at Pauriwa. He also talks later about his own iwi, Ngāti Hine and Ngāpui. A marae is a meeting place. Te mahi is to work, te raru is to have conflict or fight, and te tautoko is to support. We'll post these definitions in the blog post for this episode, so you can refer back to them easily. Kia ora everyone, uh, my name is Etienne Neho. I'm the Raukora Māra, uh, ki rongi te whenua o Paurewa, so I'm the Māra manager at Paurewa. I hail from the north, I was born and raised in Whangarei, um, in, in a little town called Pipiwai. Inland we've got no moana that we um, affiliate to, so it's all our and streams that we affiliate to. I've been part of Ngāti Whātua, Iwi for about 11 years now, I've been with my partner, married for five, into the hawk whanau. So this piece of land that we're on directly is called Pōrewa. Um, it comes from the saying, uh, karewa te pō, karewa te tangata. So to elevate the pō is to elevate the people. Because this was a lookout point back in the day for Ngāti Whātua. They would look out over the basin for enemies or for, for anyone that was coming in and around the estuaries or um, Okahu Bay. Um, this piece of land has been used for um, 
but it was a pony club. And four years ago, it was gifted back to Auntie Patua. We kind of look after the Rako, the Māori um, of the whenua, the, nerd, the native nursery um, and the Marakai. I guess the, the project on, on Pōrua was developed because we had a, a small marae um, nursery. It was like maybe 50,000 plant capacity. At the back of our marae was pretty humble and we needed to expand to be able to meet um, our needs for the whenua as well as council contractual needs. We can house I think 450 to 400,000 plants at full capacity in our nursery, which is which is pretty pretty massive compared to 50,000 before. Um, and that, that's our commercial arm, so that's our bread and butter, um, which keeps us all employed. But on the other side of Pōrewa, uh, we have the Marakai. And the Marakai, or the, the Kai Garden, is developed to feed the community and feed the iwi. Back in the days in Te Ao Māori, you wouldn't be judged of how much land, how, much, how many people or, or, or the area that you're in, you'd be judged off your kai. Your kai was your currency, your kai was your sustenance of your iwi. So back in the days, we would have been highly revered people. We would have been VIPs in a sense. <laughs> That's a funny way to look at it, but we would have been on the pedestal because the people that feed the iwi keep the iwi alive. So I guess the kaupapa that we're trying to instill within our mahi is to provide that sustenance, but not just for our iwi, for our eastern community, for our city mission, for our less fortunate um, throughout Tamaki Makoto predominantly and our other marae. We don't sell any of the kai, it's, it's all for the love. Um, and I guess when you grow kai to, to give it away, knowing that you're nourishing people and, and helping um, give them healthy organic kai, it's, it's a really, really rewarding job. It's something that I like to see a lot more because quite often um, the importance is undervalued by the monetary figure or the monetary gain of, of these things and other places. Um, for example, you know, um, you have big, you've got big supermarkets and stuff that are selling the same type of veggies, um, you know, that have been sprayed, et cetera, at a, at a ridiculous rate. Um, it makes eating healthy unaffordable. And, and it's crazy that, you know, a top producer of quite a, quite a bit of this kai, you know, it charges its own people um, a lot of money. So um, I guess, for us, it's been an awesome piece to show what you can do with a bit of land, um, the right heart, I guess. I guess, you know, if your heart's not in the right place and it's you're not there for the right reason, things won't flow um, or, or work as well as they do. But um, I guess because we're passionate about it and it's more than just growing kai, it's about sustaining our iwi and our, and our people. Education is also really important at Pōrewa, and Etienne and his colleagues spend a lot of time with students from primary school to university level showing them around the mata and teaching them about growing kai. It's a massive education piece, you know, teaching kids that um, you can grow your own kai at home, you can eat your own kai, and um, it's a lot more sustainable, healthy, organic, but also it's a way to reconnect with the whenua, and that's the main part. You know, it, it, you don't have to be Māori to connect with the whenua of Aotearoa. You know, if, if you've got the right mindset and, and your heart's in the right place, you know, it's, it's for everyone, and, and that's what I really like to um, to try and break down any barriers about Māori land is for Māori only. No, it's not. It's for everyone, and that was what it was intended for, to be shared, and I guess we're still sharing in the way that we mahi, um, the way that we share our ideas and our knowledge. There's no point in having knowledge if you don't share it. So if you don't disperse it or pass it out, you know, um, that's how it does get lost. The māra at Pōrewa is laid out in a circle, with a plan to have a sundial and a moondial in the centre. It was designed by Rob Small to reflect the philosophy of the Māra, 
which is based around a maramataka, or Māori lunar calendar. When you use the sundial, we can plant east facing, which would be two to do to how we would have planted east to west. So the plants get the first sun in the morning and the last sun in the night time. But as well as that, it's a good guiding principle because there's, there's some days where it'll be a perfectly beautiful sunny day, but it won't be a, a good planting day. And quite a few people go, oh, you know, it's all about the sun. Really? Yeah, the sun gives the plants the energy to photosynthesize, right? But they really grow and develop at nighttime under the power of the moon. That's when the fruit grow. That's when the, the actual plants grow themselves. And the moon power is massively important to plants, to us as people, and to, to the world in general, to the tile in general. Without the, the moon power, you, you wouldn't have that push and pull. You know, it would be totally unbalanced. So I guess having those matapono or values that we use in the mara really help guide us. There's some days where we'll even look at it and go, hey, look, it's not a good maramataka day. It's a low energy day. It's a time for planning. And so we'll come up here and we'll, we'll sit up in the hub and talk about different ways that we're going to grow our kai, you know, and just and kind of use that time to reflect like we would have back in the days because that's what we're trying to, I guess, pay homage to or recreate is the knowledge that our tupuna would have used to grow and to read the land. But, you know, um, being at one with the whenua definitely means soaking all aspects of it in. Pauriwa doesn't sell the food they produce. Instead, they give it away to community members each Friday. We have a nice little setup on Friday. We've got our signs out on the front area. We have a little table set up, um, different signs of what the kaya and Māori name and in uh, Te Reo Pākehā. So it's a good learning curve for, for all. One thing that I will say about Pauriwa is that it's a piece of whenua that's provided massive opportunities of growth, not only for the iwi, but for the people working it day in, day out. Not only do we work just to earn money, but we, we work to learn. So we're all enrolled in ITO programs. So we're getting like level three, level four horticulture. We've got a couple of our lads that are qualified aperture members. So they're, they're beamen. I guess it's provided a lot of opportunities for whanau to also see where their passions are. You know, until you come and volunteer or come down to Pōrewa, you don't know what the vibe's like working with the whenua and how healing it is. It's something that I've definitely, working in, in the side I do on the mara kai, is that when, like I said before, when you're, when you're not selling the kai, but you're giving it out knowing that you're nourishing and you're providing for your whānau, for your nannies, for your, for your favourite aunties, for your cousins, your little nieces and nephews, that type of mahi is priceless. I've been doing it for nearly three years now and the buzz that I still get every Friday or every harvest day when I give out to the whānau, like everyone goes, man, you, you look so happy about this. And I said, how can you not be happy providing this this organic, beautiful kai to people and then having members of the community coming in when our whānau are there and also um, seeing the whānau you know, making the relationships and, and seeing us all as one community. That's what it's about, pulling people together over free kai you know, people look at it and go, oh, you know, it's, it's not a big thing. In my eyes, it's a massive thing. It's it's a way that the whole of Aotearoa should be. We shouldn't be paying for organic, fresh produce like this. Like I said, being one of the main producers of it and, export, and exporters of fresh produce, it's crazy that our people don't have access to this type of kai readily. Um, it blows my mind, actually. And and until you work um, in this type of field and, I guess, experience it, from not from a monetary gain, but from a mana gain, it's it really it really it really shows. It's really evidence for me. I'm I'm not out here for 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 fame or for for kudos about the mahi that I do directly. I want to uplift Ngati Fatua 
Oraki's image in regards to what they're doing for the iwi, what they're doing for the community. So I'm nothing but a bare servant to the to the iwi, and I wouldn't have it any other way because in the day, a small narrative, Ngāti Hine came to the aid of Ngāti Whātua. Um, they housed them when they were having battles with Ngāpui Nui Tonu, with, with my bigger iwi, and didn't engage in those conflicts. And so Marae were gifted to Ngāti Hine through Ngāti Whātua. And for me, my story is, yeah, Ngāti Hine will continue to tautoko Ngāti Whātua Rake because um, us as Māori need to stick together this day and age. Yeah, we, we, we had a lot of raru and fights back in the day, but now it's us as, as a people, as one, to look out for the whenua, to look out for the taiao, and to look out for each other. Jason Jardine is President and Director of Winemaking at Hansel Vineyard in Sonoma, California. He's been there since 2014, and together with the team, he's created an organic, no-till vineyard system. They graze cows, pigs, chickens, ducks, geese, and sheep, moving through the vines daily in winter and spring and then moving them into the forests for summer and autumn. Originally, I had thought that the animals were the most important feature of the system, but actually, as Jason explains, there's other parts that are maybe even more important. The system really started with just integrating sheep into the vineyards in the very beginning, and because at the time we were so interested in collecting and looking at data and really understanding the impact of what the sheep were having to not only the soil biology, but the, the growth of the cover crop and the vines, the fertility and, and everything around it. You know, the, the obvious th- things w- in the very beginning were, of course, it just everything felt different. You know, when you have animals interacting in this symbiotic way with your soil and the plants and they're walking around and you're integrating with them and the people are in there, it's just a very different feeling you know there's there's a different life associated with the place and so we did that for many many years and and this was in 2004 2005 we started with sheep and what i wasn't really seeing at the time was a lot of the integration of the manure because here in california your rainy season is very short and so what I really was seeing was a lot of manure was just sitting on top of the soil surface and then drying up and volatilizing off. So we weren't getting a lot of integration of the fertility of that. And more importantly, sort of like that, that connection with the, the humus layer that I was looking for. And so then incorporated chickens because we we're like, okay, we're going to bring chickens into the system because the chickens are going to scratch through that manure and they're going to be a partner to, to sort of the sheep. That was a game changer at the time. So I wouldn't graze today without the chickens. And, and you'll see down there where, where our cows just gave birth to the two calves, we have 45 chickens in with them. And not only does it keep the flies down because they eat the larvae and things like that, but it's really in terms of a soil health environment and keeping the overall balance there is they're just constantly scratching in uh, that manure. So in the beginning, we were doing research on just composting versus grazing because we didn't have enough sheep and enough chickens to kind of graze all all the acres we were farming. I was also practicing biodynamics at the time. So the compost was being made up here in Santa Rosa. We were putting in the biodynamic preparations. I was also bringing rock phosphate in and lime from out of state, um, organic straw from the Central Valley and or Oregon to mix with it. And then we were, we were needing massive amounts because of the acreage that we were farming, as well as these vineyards were on volcanic ash and, and 
Monterey shell and schist and things, so the pH was very low. So in order to incorporate enough lime into the system, we had to bring sort of it through the compost because I didn't want to put just raw lime out there because that is an issue with biology as well. And so, so we were just using massive amounts of, of compost. And what was interesting in the areas that where we were just composting, we weren't really seeing and this, I followed this over about 10 years. We really weren't seeing an increase in overall fertility. And I was seeing an increase in bacteria levels. And so we were, doing, we were really looking at the soil food web uh, closely because I, I, I think one thing I did determine early on that our greatest path to sort of f- sustainable fertility and combating climate change here in California and working with these shallow rocky soils was just boosting our fungi levels, getting, you know, solidifying that mycelium connection between all the lands that we were on and creating humus layer, creating soil and all those things. And with the composting system, because we were spading it, which I thought at the time was like the best, if you're going to till, you know, use a spader. And so we were spading it and then we were hand hoeing under the vines and we were throwing compost under the vines, which then really didn't get any integration into the soil whatsoever. But I was doing, you know, spraying 500, um, the biodynamic preparation 500 on top of the barrel compost. And then we're doing silica and then all the, most of the other um, preparations were kind of brought through the compost uh, system. And then through, through tillage, we would open up the soils and the Spring, and then they would pretty much remain open all the way until fall rains and trying to get cover crop seeded. And that was always the, the sketchiest time of year because we were on slopes. And luckily we were pretty rocky soils, so you didn't have a lot of surface runoff. But I, it just, I kept looking at that system and questioning it every single year. And then I was looking at the small amount of animals we had that we're starting to integrate into some of the blocks and it just all felt better to me. It felt right. Uh, And then because we weren't seeing really a significant difference in the fertility of the blocks that we were composting versus the blocks that we weren't and that we were just cover cropping and we were not crimping yet at the time, we were just grazing. So that kind of what is led into the crimper because I was like, okay, so if we can just sort of cover crop graze, move the animals out, get another full growth of the cover crop. So we're about four to five feet of biomass that we can crimp down then at the appropriate time and lay the surface armor over the whole vineyard floor. Not only would we get much more protection from erosion, but we the conservation of water, moisture, and carbon sequestration, you know, where I was, I was basically contributing carbon versus sinking carbon, which is my overall goal. And this is still in the mid-2000s when, you know, these things really, yet yeah, it was hard to find examples. But, you know, we were really, um, no one was really talking about it yet. And so I didn't, this is all, and I'm not a scientist, never went to school, I'm not an agronomist. You know, it's just, just all stuff from trying to th- be thoughtful and do the right thing and, and et cetera. So I didn't really have the tools. I didn't really know what, was gonna, what we were going to accomplish. But all I know is that it kind of kept feeling good. It just felt better. So the other key thing at the time is that really no, no-till drill cedar existed. So it's like, then how do we get new cover crop into this crimp down material? So that was a challenge for several years. And I was trying to use kind of like the traditional Schmeiser 
drill seeder and it was sort of successful, but it wasn't very successful with larger seeds like peas and fava beans and things, which are kind of key into the system. So I was going pretty heavy with other legumes like vetch and clovers because they're super small seeds and they tend to work their way down in through the crimp material much easier. I would say that system will consume nitrogen for about three years. And I think this is the, the other key piece that I unfortunately, I think, detours people early on because they see, okay, I'm not gaining any nitrogen or my petioles are showing low nitrogen or my soil, I'm not really seeing it yet. And, and there's a lot of things that have to happen sort of in the interim. If you're going from, and particularly in California, rocky soils, if you're going from a, a tilled system or even a system where you were perhaps just mowing heavily, you're most likely going to have fairly low organic matters. And those organic matters are going to be anywhere. Like here at Hanzel, when we started in 2014 with, with the system here, our organic matter was 0.5%. So not even 1%. But we're on shallow volcanic soils, relatively lower pHs. But we have this beautiful Red Hill Series clay um, on top. So the potential for retention of not only water and nutrients, um, but mycelium and organic matter and boost in fungi levels is absolutely here. Um, so that was one of the most exciting pieces about joining Handel. So early on, until you get the organic matter up to about 5%, you're consuming nitrogen because you're, something needs to feed the growth of that organic matter. You need to make the adjustments like where you're gra grazing, um, what you're just solely going to cover crop and crimp, the areas where you're not grazing, you can boost your legume counts up to a little bit more than than 60%, 55%, and go as heavy as maybe 80% in the interim in the, in the, in the first couple of years and just decide to solely crimp. Where you're grazing, you have to be cautious, of, especially with sheep and things where you, you don't get a lot of bloating, and so you don't want it to be too rich, and so you want to add some carbon, but then also carbon is very important into the system. So you want to make sure you at least have, you know, 20% carbon. So it's like this very complicated thing. So here I do, like, we'll... Uh, some years have three different cover crop seed mixes on different parts of the vineyard based on if the plan is to solely graze, if it's to solely crimp, or if it's to bale. I love the idea of having animals integrate into the system. I think that's very, very important. And especially if local communities are utilizing these animals as a as a food source, as a sustainable way to feed our communities. That's really not happening yet today. So, so I think... In the early stages, if you, I would not graze at all if you weren't prepared to have kind of the diversified grazing system in place. So I would really recommend like dialing in a, an annual cover cropping system and utilizing crimping as a way initially to start building organic matter and get through that kind of three-year hump of, and then what do you do in the interim? And so I am a proponent of um, plant-based uh, fertigations, supplements, so whether it's hydrolyzed soy protein or pea protein, particularly because of the amino acids and everything else associated with it as an interim kind of step to help offset some of the consumption of nitrogen. You're gonna build phosphorus and uh, potassium through your cover cropping. I don't bring any fertilizers to this ranch, never did from the start in 2014. And we're about at 7% organic matter now here and sustained fertility with no need for anything. Uh, it is possible. And so it's just, you have to be patient and sort of thoughtful in, in the approach. And what you don't wanna do is, is expect too much too soon and allow that to detour your goals and your ambitions to ultimately kind of getting 
through it and, and achieving a system that works for you. I have uh, one question here, which is, uh, maybe you could just expand a little bit on why is the crimper so key? Like, what did you see as the, yeah. We really, as farmers, sh should and can have a major impact on climate change. I mean, we really can. And and it's it's a, I know it's like a hard subject or whatever, but the truth is, is we're major contributors to where we are today. And so carbon sequestration is is one way of doing that. And I think by laying down rather than pulverizing this biomass, both carbonous and leguminous, uh, and, and you have in also in connection with that, these massive daikon radish. So I'm a huge advocate of incorporating any root crops. And we even sow beets and carrots out into, and turnips out into the vineyard. The animals love it, and I think they're a great store for the exudates from the legume crops to then re-release that nutrition as that moisture of that root crop slowly decomposes through the growing season when everything else is already dry or carbonous. So if you just were to mow it, you basically don't get any of that armor on the soil. You don't, you can't lay down eight inches of, of mulch. You don't get slow decomposition. The crimping also allows for longer root activity in the soil throughout the growing season. So, so that's another key step to kind of what's the ideal, having living roots in our soils for as long as we can in the growing season or in the year in general. It's hard to do that. So crimping is a way that you can terminate top growth but still stimulate root growth that that material then on top doesn't get blown away doesn't volatilize off it provides a lot of moisture helps to feed that humus layer so 80 percent of all of our active biology is in the top 10 centimeters of the soil so so this goes to another one of those ideal things like what are we trying to accomplish and to achieve if we know that i mean these are things i'm not a scientist but i think that's fact right i mean that we like this is something that i think we know and so i try to take the little bits of knowledge that I actually have and say, okay, if we, if we know that, then why would I do anything to destroy it? I, I want to build on that. I want to I make that 10, 10, 10 centimeters, 20 centimeters. And then next year, I want to make it 30 centimeters. I want to do everything I can to expand on that layer, not, not destroy it once or twice every year and, and start over again. The other thing that I, I have determined is that the higher the fungi levels to bacteria ratio I can get, um, not only am I seeing greater retention of organic matter and cover crop growth and water retention and vine interaction development within the soil, it's the, the vine's ability to adapt to different climate situations, but th that biology is really what is breaking down the cover cropping and the manures that we're integrating through our, our grazing program and actually making them functional, you know, making them usable. And that was a real breakthrough too, was like, okay, I'm seeing fungi. And, and as I'm seeing this happen, I'm seeing all these benefit and observations at the same time. So there's a correlation there. And that's just something you cannot achieve without crimping. It just, you can't do it. You can't achieve it with just grazing. It will not happen. So, so that's when I go back and say, if you can only do one thing, if you can only commit to one thing for a period of time, commit to cover cropping and crimping. I still plant cover crop seed every single year. And that's something that I'm starting 
now that the system is built and we have the biomass levels that that we have, we have the organic percentage where it needs to be. We have we have uh, not only a sustained level of nutrients, but where fertility is growing year over year is something that I start to scale back on a little. And so um, I start off, that's something we didn't talk about earlier on too, in terms of pounds per acre. So I start really heavy in, in converting these systems, you know, 250 pounds per acre of annual cover crop seed. Um, and then that gets scaled down as, as you start to see an increase in biomass organic matter. But it's more about that, that carpet, that armor, making sure you're getting enough mass in your cover crop um, to have a significant amount of armor left onto the soil for our, our summers and our dry desertification of our area and then the high solar radiations. Um, so this year, you know, eight years now or so into the system, I'm still looking at about 175 pounds uh, per acre. And, and again, that's a mix of, I try to use, you know, five or six different types of legumes. Um, and then as many diversified cereals as possible, whether it's red oats, white oats, triticale, barley, buckwheat, whatever, um, annual rye. Um, we're pretty successful here in growing all of those things, fortunately. And then, uh, you know, the peas and clovers and vetch and, and uh, fava beans and things like that. And then we'll incorporate root crops into it. So it's all about sourcing cover crop seed this time of year. So you've had the grazing going for a little while. Then when do you decide to crimp? And what does that look like? I try to hit it when the vast majority of the species are at full bloom hard to do, right, when you're growing a combination of a lot of cereals and, and legumes. Um, but that's the goal. And at, they're at their full fertility at, at that point, and then you still have significant moisture in a lot of the legumes to have slow decomposition and then provide that connection to the mycelium level that was there and rebuilding it and the humus layer and everything else. But then the carbonous plants are just starting to carbon up at the stalk. Crimp too early, things flop back up on you. They're just too bringy, right? There's no, so you, so you want to pay a lot of attention to the surface area level and then how carbon is the stock of the plants at that level. Crimp too late, which is, I guess, in a way better than crimping too early. But if you, the advantage though to crimping too early is the worst case, you make another pass a week or two later, which you try not to do just because of, you know, extra tractor work and everything else, compaction and all that. But you crimp too late and you, you really miss out on providing the amount of moisture that you need for the breakdown of, of nutrients. And it's like, it's like you might as well just throw straw, dry straw out there and that's not the goal, right? So, so I choose, like, so, so every year it's, it, the time changes. I can change a good bit here actually for us. It can be four weeks apart from the time that we crimp. Um, so you just pay a lot of attention to, again, what you're observing where. Different areas mature at different rates and so we're, we're spot crimping in some locations. Steep slopes tend to dry out on top faster than they are due on the bottom, so we're looking at those sort of things as well. But I, timing your crimping is, is as important as crimping itself, if that, if that makes sense. And then once things are crimped, that's, that's it for, for the year. The other thing I ask a lot too is how do you manage the understory? Because you can't crimp under the understory, which I wish I haven't found a tool to do that. I wish there was one. Um, and I, that would be awesome if you can do that. The, I try to get a crimper that is as wide as, so I would try to crimp as much as you can. So if you, like here, unfortunately, we have anything from seven to like 15 foot wide rows on Ambassador's Vineyard. So we have to make multiple passes. So I chose to get a five foot crimper um, because it fit in the seven foot rows and that kind of like leaves a foot on each side, which is still 
relatively tight, but about as good as you can get. Um, my preference for managing the understory, because even if even though we're not seeding the understory, seed gets spread there, right? So it's a, it's a massive uh, amount of material that grows in the understory, um, which we want. I like to use a sickle bar. So if you can use a sickle bar attachment onto like a weed whacker to where you're just basically cutting it at the, the soil surface and then letting all that material fall and mulch in full length, that's ideal. Um, some, it's hard. That's one thing that is hard on the vineyard uh, staff is, is going through and doing that. Um, so I love one day uh, whoever can build an attachment on a tractor to do a sickle bar cut under there would be awesome. Cause I don't want to till it, of course, for all the reasons we discussed earlier. And weed whacking does tend to pulverize the material and, and it just kind of gets blown away. Um, we've kind of come up with these weed whacking blades and a technique now that where we can use regular weed whackers and it kind of just lays, lays down where it's at. Um, and that's another way to do it. If you use like the blades instead of the string, um, tends to work better. And because you want that mulch on the understory. I would say it's almost more important in the understory to keep your soil temperatures cool and particularly for wine quality um, than it is in the vineyard rows. So, so why hand hoe it, right? Why, why crimp in the vineyard and then hoe or till under the vine? It, it doesn't make, uh, that's not going to, you're not going to see the results as quickly um, by doing that. episode of Farmerama was made by me, Olivia Oldham, and Joe Barrett and Abby Rose. A big thanks to the rest of the Farmerama team, Katie Rebel, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Dora Taylor. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. <laughs>